people that you can't do it. Uh, start at the bottom, like me. I was making no money. I remember I was living in like a 300 square foot tiny place in uh, Incheon, Korea. And I was like, I need to get into a grad school. I needed to go back to like my life in economics. And in like three, four years, like huge turnaround. Be patient, like, you know, interest compounds, value compounds. So it's okay if it takes like a year or two to get where you want. Just have like year long visions. Like people, what is, they overestimate what they can do in a week, but they underestimate what they can do in a year. That's very, very true. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artist of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artist of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Our guest today is a data scientist, economist, and urban studies enthusiast. He's an all renegade that loves to use Shiny to automate business processes, create interactive maps, and leverage public data to model urban health phenomenon. He's earned a bachelor's degree in applied economics from the University of Central Florida, a master's in applied economics from John Hopkins University. Throughout his career, he's had a diverse range of experience, including time as a freight broker, a year-long stint teaching English in Korea, and working as a data science freelancer. He's currently a senior data scientist at an up-and-coming global consulting firm working in the public sector on the data science consulting side and specializes in the intersections of R Shiny, GIS, machine learning, NLP, and data visualization. In his current role, he's focused on product management and leads the technical sales team within the Artificial Intelligence and Intelligence Automation Group. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, an innovator who is always striving to improve processes and bring efficiency to each project that he's a part of, Carlos Mercado. Carlos, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today, man. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks. And thanks for adding in that uh, recommendation from an old boss of mine into that intro. She's uh, very nice to me. I miss, I miss working for her in some ways. I'm trying to poach her. We'll find out if that works. Let's talk about how you first heard of data science and what drew you to the field. So I graduated in econ and I ended up in sales freight brokerage. I saw a little bit of SQL and mostly just like maps, like price modeling forecast stuff for freight brokerage stuff. And I was like, this is cool. It's not really economics or whatever. Then I got into teaching. I was a nonprofit before that. I was in retail management before that. So, I mean, I was working all through college. I probably 10 years I've been doing something. And like, I just started drifting further and further away from economics. And I just like woke up and I'm like, I need to get back to what I was trying to do. Like I was trying to do economics and math and like forecasting and stuff. And now I'm teaching, which is fun, but it's just, it's not what I wanted. So I was Googling like, what are the cool jobs to do for people with economics degrees? And then I saw all the articles, number one job of the century, data scientist. This was back in like 2016. And I was like, I was like, I thought I was late. Now I'm thinking that I was like right on time. But yeah, so I saw the t titles and I was like, okay, well, what do they need to know? And I remember at the time I was looking at the rankings and I was like, okay, R is above Python, 
but R is growing at a slower rate than Python. And they estimate that in one year, Python will beat R. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just learn the leading language now and I'll worry about what happens in the future later. And then now, yeah, now I, I mean, I taught myself R through like the Johns Hopkins Coursera specialization. I went to grad school, um, did a lot of R there, got my first job, automated a bunch of stuff in R. So, I mean, I got into data science because the internet said it was a good idea and R was the language to learn. And I came from a Stata background, so R was super easy relative to like a real programming language. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting just to draw parallels to my own journey. I actually also studied economics as an undergraduate, uh, first undergraduate courses that I went to and went on to teach as well. And I was a math teacher at a public charter school. And this was around 2008. And at that time, when I Googled top careers, top career that came up was actuary. And so that was what led me into this field of data science eventually started all the way back then with the actuarial exam P. Um, but, you know, taking into consideration now uh, the journey you've had over the last few years, breaking into data science, where do you see the field headed in the next two to five years? Yeah. So I'm going to be the contrarian, man. I see, uh, I don't think data science is that new. I mean, when you say actuary, I'm like, yeah, that's what they used to be called before that they were called something else. Like we've been doing big data and fancy statistics since the 1950s. I mean, like physics, geography, like we've had big data problems for decades. Um, you know, AI used to be called expert systems. So, I mean, if you look into the history of the field, you see that the, it's not, it's just the title's changing. The work's still the same, you know, converting data into money. So when I see like the field in the next two to five years, I don't see it that much different. I mean, you know, it's cloud virtual machines. Sure. That's just computers in Virginia instead of computers in front of you. Like the parallels are, are there so that like not that much is going to change. Like don't, don't get distracted by like the new titling and the new ways of doing stuff. And like, don't get distracted by the new coolest new neural network, GANs, whatever, like the fundamentals are still good. Um, so, I mean, I think the field's going to stretch out. I mean, I think we're going to see speech become more and more important. Then we're going to see speech replace a lot of the dashboarding technologies that we're using. Um, I think natural language processing is going to get bigger. I think computer vision is going to get bigger. Then we're going to find new ways of using algorithms from one field into another. But I just want to like remind people, I think the fundamentals are going to stay because they've not left. You mentioned that the field in your view is pretty much more or less going to be similar or the same as how it is now. Uh, so whether it's two to five years in the future or now, what are the qualities that separate good data scientists from a great data scientist? I think the great ones will listen to the advice from other people that I've, I mean, I'm repeating advice. It's not my advice. Like the fundamentals are the difference, the fundamentals of the difference. So that's the fundamentals of product management, the fundamentals of communication, of negotiation, of, you know, understanding how machines work, how computers work, um, going back to the original languages. I mean, one of the best data scientists I've seen on LinkedIn is always telling me I need to learn like Haskell or something. And I'm like, how am I going to learn these like 50 year old languages? But you look at the fundamentals and they, you know, it's like if these are the languages you should study if you want to learn functional programming. You should go to the basics and statistics. You should understand, you know, how general linear models work as opposed to studying how neural networks work. So the fundamentals are the differentiator. I don't know if you give them book recommendations or if they'll see the video, but I got this book off LinkedIn. Um, Kevin Gray posted it. 
uh, essential mathematics for political and social research. This is like the second Bible to me in terms of like statistics and stuff like that. The first one being, of course, the elements of statistical learning, the actual statistics Bible. Um, but if you don't, if you have a social science background and you're like, oh man, I didn't do engineering. Can I do data science? Oh, I didn't do computer science or math. Can I do data science? Yes, you can. And like, there are books for you that are written for you that will get you those fundamentals. And this is a great one. And I keep it literally next to me all the time as I'm working. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely add that one to the show notes. Uh, great recommendation. Uh, so you, you mentioned NLP audio data. Like, what do you think is going to be interesting about those in the next two to five years? I mean, I think what people don't, I think what people naturally do is they try to like focus on one thing at a time. And the big picture is like, how are, how is our culture changing in the data generation process? And what are the next problems? So when I said study the fundamentals, it's because the next the next problems will generate data the way that all data is generated and stored. You know, like so this audio data is not going to be stored as MP3s. You're going to be translating it into other formats. You're going to be doing feature engineering to bring it back to the fundamentals. So to answer the NLP thing, you know, we got to think about what's changing today. What's changing today is that people are getting really used to speed. They're getting used to telling their phone what to do, telling their car what to do, telling their little you know, robo assistant in their house, what to do. And that robo assistant translating that audio into machine understandable, you know, keywords and stuff, then it will do a command and then it'll get immediate feedback. So it's like constantly learning the NLP audio and speech. And the fact that people will be using speech to get things done um, is the next frontier. And I, like I said before, there's already companies. I know click is doing this. I imagine Microsoft will do a power BI soon. I know thought spot is out there. Like, NLP and speech will be how we dashboard in the next few years. So if you're looking to find a niche, like NLP and audio is going to be a niche for data science, especially. Thanks for that insight, man. So uh, I think a lot of data scientists, they do spend a lot of their time studying data structures, algorithms, coding. Not enough time in economics, I don't think. No, um, not enough time in economics. Economics yeah. is so cool. So g give us a description of what economics is kind of from your point of view and if you can make it accessible for data scientists out there. So I, I think uh, it's funny. Like if you know, they say like, if you, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, you're uh, overcomplicating it. People tend to hear economics and their brain goes to like money, finance and like trade. And like, that's not really economics. Economics is understanding like how you structure decisions in the context of like business goals. So it's like sunk cost and opportunity cost and marginal versus average cost and fixed cost and variable cost. And these words sound money related, but they're not money related. They're just value related. You can apply these concepts to time and you can apply them to funny things in automation, like numbers of clicks and, you know, the business processes. I mean, I think of it, it's just like an applied decision science, more so than like a social science to me personally. Okay. So we've got big data. We've got the era of big data, era of AI, you know, machine learning. How does the application of economics differ now than it did before? And maybe, you know, if you want to add in yeah, about yeah. Bitcoin to that. Big thing right now is, um, and I was just talking about this on the internet about frequent dispersion Bayesian versus Bayesian stuff. Stuff and like probability theory and how people think about these problems, how they explain them to each other. I think the big benefits of big data for economics is that it'll let you do better and easier like causal research. So in the context of like medicine, for example, um, and I don't want to have a whole thing about HIPAA. I know that um, there's plenty of data scientists on LinkedIn who are anti-HIPAA and you will find their posts on that. But let's just let's just keep going. 
Um, you know, imagine that you have, you know, millions of people taking a medication and you have all this data on these people. Well, now you're in a territory where you can start doing like causal research because you have the same individuals, you have their health outcomes over time, you have medications over time, and it's no longer a cross-sectional, like non-causal thing because most of our data is cross-sectional. And what I mean by that is like, okay, well, I have this point in time and in this point in time, there's this data and there's different individuals, but I'm going to run regression and I'm going to look at the marginal stuff and I'm going to say, hey, this relationship's significant. That's not how you do causal research. Causal research requires like, you know, difference and difference, regression, discontinuity, like all that stuff requires that you're holding something's constant at the individual level. And I think if we think of big data and economics in terms of like longitudinal studies and natural experiments, uh, I think that's the big improvement is that longitudinal high information at the individual level allows for natural experiments that lead to like really good causal research. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think medicine is the easiest example because you think of like, okay, well, I have these people who take this medication over time. And I'm not comparing them to other people who are older and a cross-sectional and comparing them to themselves. And I can start actually like making really solid arguments that these medicines are causing changes on their health. So I think, yeah, to summarize long-term individual level, longitudinal causal research is the big impact of economics and big data. I like that a lot, man. It's very, very insightful and definitely going to give me a lot to think about. I'm sure our listeners are going to have a lot to think about as well. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. Let's talk about Bitcoin as it relates to data science and machine learning, how those two are going to interplay in the near future. So let's not let's take backtrack from Bitcoin and talk about blockchain. What does blockchain let us do? Blockchain, public ledgers, this is like a self-verifying system, right? So if you want to make a change on a data set, it has to be like approved by like the crowd almost. And this is a rough, this is a very rough explanation of what's happening. But like you could imagine like, okay, you know, uh, again, let's talk about medical context. Like, oh, hey, I'm going to submit this person's record to the system. And you're saying like, hey, this record is this person's at this time. Well, you're trying to submit this block to the ledger. And then all these other people are checking their system. So it's like, oh, hey, your block cannot be added to the single source of truth, the ledger, because it's not passing these checks that are in my blockchain. Um, and I'm, I'm like mixing concepts here. But so... Like, hey, I want to submit person A's, you know, updated record. Hey, you know, you can't do that because I don't even have the record of person A coming to see you. So there's no way that I can allow you to assign that record to person A, given that I haven't fully mapped that person A has been to see you, which doesn't fully map to the fact that person A hasn't taken the medication. They haven't, you know, updated their prescription for this medication in the last 30 days. So your record can't be valid. Um, and it's just like these natural self-correcting mechanisms to like have a single source of truth that's like super super validated um and it might be a I'm, I'm mixing a lot of concepts to simplify there but i mean i think it's super cool i mean i think it's super cool the applications in terms of like 
self-validating systems to some extent and having that single source of truth and then version controlling data. Um, we don't talk about version controlling data enough. We really talk about version controlling our code, but that's, I think, another thing. So let me add that to the two to five years. Version controlling your data um, will be way bigger in the next two to five years. Yeah, definitely, man. That's one thing I don't think gets discussed enough. I don't even see a lot of posts on LinkedIn about that at all. Um, and I think that's something that's a very important piece of the conversation is version controlling data, um, especially when you have, I mean, you got models in production, right? Uh, and you're naturally going to have data drift occur. So if you don't have versioned history of your data, you can't. Yeah. I mean, if you think in terms of model drift and like black swan events, I mean, there were models in production back in 2005 and 2007 that were feeling great. They were like, we're recovering from 2001. We're recovering from 9-11. These models are all, you know, bull, bull, bull. We're going to make tons of money in the next five years. And then Lehman Brothers falls and the black swan event. Suddenly, can you use those models anymore? Is your model going to correct for this like massive shift in your data? What does that actually mean for your production systems? And I'm not sure that we're using the lessons from data science in that time period for our expectations for data science after COVID. And I don't want to talk about that too much, but like, I think we're not, we're not really using history enough to inform our expectations for the next two to five years as we recover from that. And I'm not sure what we should do about that. Just something I'm noting. So kind of changing gears a little bit. Uh, I noticed that you've got significant expertise and experience using GIS. So first, can you kind of define that for us. What is it? How does it relate to data science? Uh, and maybe within the context of urban economics and how it's being applied to urban economics. So GIS is Geographic Information Systems. It's everything um, related to the creation, collection, storage, retrieval, um, analysis, and presentation of data that is fundamentally spatial. Um, and that's probably a rough quote from my class that I learned in grad school because I was like, oh, yeah, GIS. It's like machine learning. It's like, no, GIS is the entire thing. It's every single step is included in GIS. And I was like, okay, very cool. It's extremely broad. Um, so how's it relates to urban economics? There are fundamental spatial relationships for a lot of reasons. And I think of something called Tobler's first law. It's like things near each other are more similar than things far away. And it's like, oh, holy crap, that's so obvious. Like, it's just such an obvious statement. But it was just such a big deal because so much of our data, we just throw away the geospatial part. We're just like, well, you know, it's collected from where it's collected, but these are the features that I want and these are the features I engineered. And it doesn't matter what you run on it. Like, you start looking at residuals and these residuals are correlated and you're like, well, yeah, these correlated residuals, no big deal. And it's because you're omitting stuff. And really, really often it's because you're omitting spatial, like data. You're missing spatial information. Um, so in urban economics, you know, you can talk about a bunch of stuff. You can talk about health disparities and how you want to understand differences and health outcomes, um, you know, across minority groups based on where they live. But you might not be incorporating the fact that where they live doesn't just impact their access to hospitals. It also impacts their access to food and the quality of that food. So GIS becomes a mechanism for assigning food swamp ratings, food desert ratings, you know, health disparity ratings to geographic areas that let you start doing interventions. Um, and that's like the social determinants of health and urban economics and, you know, health equity. There's a bunch of like buzzwords that intersect on that. But yeah, GIS is a big deal. And there's a lot of things to learn. I think if, if, you, if, if you have no clue what to study in GIS, I definitely recommend you at least Google this, M-A-U-P. It's uh, the mappable aerial unit problem, I think is what the acronym stands for. 
The idea that aggregating up from individuals to geographic units is often arbitrary and it's extremely dangerous, but it's also mandatory because you have to do it because you can't have individual level data and talk about an area. Um, so I'm getting a little into the weeds, but if you look at that phrase, it will change how you look at maps for the rest of your life. Very interesting. So in the sense that it's dangerous, is that because people can move from one geographic location to the other? So No, it's um, it's the aggregation. So I, I guess my point is, um, okay, so let's think about something like income, right? Like, oh, you know, if you have people in New York City and San Francisco, they make tons of money. So you start looking at, you know, income maps across the country and you're like, okay, well, if I'm going to start doing, you know, pay equity stuff, or maybe I want to start investing in, you know, um, you know, new employment programs. I'm not going to do it in New York City and San Francisco because they make tons of money. But that's because you're at the city level. Go down a level. Go to the county level. Although this is actually the county is too big there. Go to the, the census tract level. Okay, now you start seeing that there's differences in income across census tracts. So now you're a more granular unit and you have more information. Census tracts still have problems because you're still mixing people up in census tracts. You go to the census block group, you go to the census block. There's always a problem when you're aggregating individual stuff up to an area level. And when we don't think that, when we forget that, it leads us to, you know, not taking factors into account. We don't take into account, you know, gentrification, or we don't take into account like food swamps in one area. Um, One thing that we found in a paper that I'm hoping to, make external in the next few months is, um, you know, we were looking at the importance of using census block groups whenever possible instead of census tracts, because census tracts are how everyone does their analysis, because it's very granular. There's 72,000 of them. Census block groups are much smaller. There's 220,000 of them. And even within a single census tract in like very small town, Alabama, this is just a random example, there's a railroad splitting the census tract. And the census block group on the north side of the railroad is like significantly wealthier, significantly, you know, less minority, significantly, um, you know, less um, isolated, if you define that as like living alone, you know, like household size of one, than the census block group on the south side of the railroad tracks, like literally wrong side of the tracks. But the census tract level blurs that. So that's the mappable area unit problem in terms of like we are, anytime you're aggregating up, you're losing information. And if you don't respect that, you will leave people behind. Very, very important insight. Thank you for sharing that. Do you have any other resources or articles that are kind of covering that topic that our readers can go check out if they want to learn more? So I do this a lot. If I want to learn something, I just start at Wikipedia and just start reading the Wikipedia page and any people, like if you see like the mother of this, the father of that, read that person's Wikipedia page. So for urban planning, um, gosh, where do I have it? Jane Jacobs, you know, the mother of urban planning, the death and life of great American cities. I have it on paperback. So I haven't finished this book. It's like a thousand pages, but just like read the history of the field and read the history of the individuals who are making huge impacts on that field. Um, So that's my first step. Like don't go straight to a blog about the field, like learn the history a little bit because without the history, you're not going to have context. And then you're going to end up on a, an open office asking people, what articles should I read? Well, you shouldn't read anything. Don't read any articles. Learn the history first. That way you know what interests you. Yeah, definitely. Learn the vocabulary of the field that you're going into so then you can develop mental models for these terms and issues that people in that space are, are working with. I was digging through some of your LinkedIn posts here and I saw 
a post about the lessons you learned from chasing a job with Airbnb. Let's talk about that from your perspective. What do you think you did wrong and how did you approach the process or how would you approach the process if you were to go through it again? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to caveat this really quick. I was not in consulting at the time. Consulting is very cool. So if you're not sure what to do, definitely check out consulting firms. They're very interesting work. Um, but to answer your question, so what happened was I was um, using the app and I was like, oh, this app's cool. You know, you like go live in someone's house for a few days and, you know, you meet strangers and they turn into like light friends and that's cool. So I started looking at the company, looking at their data science stuff. And I was like, wow, they have a lot of data science postings. Um, and the data science job advertisement, like the job descriptions are like really easy to read and they feel very possible. Um, so if you're also, if you're writing job descriptions, look at what other major companies are doing. Cause I really applaud the way that they write their job descriptions. So I read the job descriptions and I felt like, Oh, this is very doable. Um, and it feels very possible. And the more I read, the more I was interested in like their new kinds of problems. Cause they're not just, they weren't just invested in just finding people to host homes. They were also interested in being a full experience application. So I was reading this blog post about their launch of experiences and things like that. I mean, I was like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that's going on here. There's a lot of data here. There's a lot of like urban design data here, a lot of economics in here. So I just thought it was, I thought it would be a cool company to work for. So what I did was I added everyone I could find that worked there. I would read all their blog posts. I'd read all their media releases, their press releases. I would like think about their problems. I would look at the app and think about like the user experience of the app, use think about my experience using their app and all this stuff. I built up all this knowledge about them and then I applied. And I got rejected. Like, I didn't even get rejected. I just never got anything because I wasn't qualified and I wasn't doing it right. I was adding people, but I wasn't talking to them or engaging with them. I was reading stuff, but I wasn't including that in my cover letter. I wasn't like, you know, showing my relevance as I was targeting them. I just had this magic idea that, well, if I know it, they'll know that I know it. And your resume is a sales document. So if you don't include it in your cell, they're not going to know to buy. Um, so that was a big problem. And I think the, the thing I would do now is I would spend a few months finding the people who are most active on LinkedIn who work at that company, engaging with their stuff, messaging them, having a casual relationship with them, learning about their day-to-day, -day, verifying that it's actually a place that I'd fit in. I didn't know that. I wasn't checking the culture or anything like that. Yeah, and the building those relationships and then lightly poking for referrals, like just saying, hey, you know, I saw this recent post, the job posting. I know we've been talking on LinkedIn for a few months. Can you look at my resume and tell me if you think I'd be a good fit? Don't ask for the referral. Just like, just like lightly ask for some feedback and stuff. Um, and you do that to five, 10 people who work there. One of them is going to say, actually, you know, I think you'd be a good fit. Let me put you in touch with someone. And that's how you find a director or an HR rep. And you start getting the fast, you know, the fast track to the job. Because if you're not on the fast track, you're probably not on any track. Um, I know it feels mean, but like you can't be one of 500 applicants, man. It's just, it's impossible. It's just so impossible. That's great, great tips, man. Great advice. So I want to dig into another post you did on LinkedIn. Uh, about what you learned about data scientists while working for a psychiatrist at her nonprofit school. Oh yeah, so that was that was crazy. Um, so I was at I was at a nonprofit and it was like a selling thing. I was a management intern, and you know part of our thing was to communicate and like sell these projects that we do to convince companies to invest in these employee experiences that also get people fed that are food insecure. And I cold called her. And 
talked to her and she was like, of course, that sounds like a great experience for my students. And I was like, wild. So then I met her. She was really nice. Um, I learned a lot. She did the little project. And then years later, I was at a freight brokerage thinking of moving back to Orlando. And I was like, okay, let me just send her a blind email asking her if she'd be, if she uh, is interested in having like an economics grad, teach economics or something. And she's like, sure, of course. I would love to have like, talk to you more about this. And we talked and I joined her school as like, you know, a teacher and I was doing all kinds of stuff. I was like a math teacher, history teacher, PE teacher. It was a very small school. It was 30 kids across like six grades. Um, so it was very fun. And the things I learned were, you know, the reason that people went to her was, you know, partly because, you know, her school was really cool, but it was also because like her as a personality, like she was highly invested in her students as someone with expertise in child psychiatry. And I was there in those meetings with her, um, you know, where appropriate on all of them with, you know, the parents and the therapist and psychotherapist and her being a child psychiatrist and just listening to how you talk about situations that are really difficult, like really, really difficult situations. This is like your kid who's having problems that are not problems that regular kids have about their own personal self-esteem, their psychology, their confidence, their interpersonal relationships, their, you know, obedience, apparently like all these really serious psychological problems. Um, and just the empathy you learn and like the leadership you learn. And like the, the little things like reframing and paradox, which I've posted about and I definitely recommend people look into just like, how do you turn a really serious, difficult, painful situation into something that can be like a fun challenge that you believe you can conquer? And I was like, I'll never forget just like all those hours in those rooms with her, just like learning that stuff in like reality. And they've been so important because the most important part of data science besides the knowing math is being able to communicate to business people and making sure that they understand like, Hey, you can trust me with this problem and I will get you recommendations that will like, will make you look like an all-star and also make like the company an all-star. Um, I think it was a long answer. And also I'm on like the front end of data science as opposed to the back end. So I'm very people first centric. I can understand how some data scientists don't need any of that advice, but. I think, I think all data scientists need that people first advice. I think that's something that is definitely lacking from a lot of data scientists, but I wanted to ask you, you mentioned there's something about reframing. How do I take a negative and view it as a opportunity for doing something positive? So let's I can say summarize reframing paradox, if you like. Yeah. Let's see that reframing paradox. And let's try to put that in the lens of, let's say there's somebody right now who's applying for job after job after job, COVID-19 is happening and they're not getting any responses back. How could they use that reframing paradox in this situation? Sure. Um, so let's do reframe first. Reframe is the idea that the information is just a reminder to yourself that the information you have is essentially negligible in volume. And what I mean by that is like all the information you're getting, like, oh, I submit this job and no one applies. I have my resume. No one likes my skills. It's impossible. Like no one's getting hired right now. Those are like, that's data that you're collecting as your individual lived experience, but you can reframe. You can put that individual experience in the context of everyone. So don't just think about it from the person looking for jobs. Think about it from the company standpoint. Think about it in terms of like, okay, like we have a lot of uncertainty. Google, I just, I just saw an article is canceling 2000 temp and contract um, employees like as of a few days ago or something. So like these companies are facing massive amounts of uncertainty also. 
um, these HR managers, they're getting inundated with applications because these people just need a job, any job, and they're desperate. So I'm not saying that this will just magically work for you. I'm not saying like thinking of this will magically get you a job, but it will make sure that you're in context of the situation in a way that other people might not be. And you can include that in your cover letter. You can include that in the conversations that you're having, that you understand that data science right now doesn't feel like something that you should be investing in if you're a company that's very early in the maturity curve. So the reframe there, sorry, I get off track really easily. The reframe is remember all the perspectives for the people that you're dealing with, uh, the company, the hiring manager, the recruiter, the other applicants, um, because if you don't do that, you're going to do the same thing over and over and over again and wonder why your results don't change. Um, paradox is the idea that sometimes your action, the opposite of your action will be better than your action. So people tend to have this bias that, okay, well, I want to make, I want to do an action. So here are my possible actions. And they always do this for some reason. Their possible actions are all really similar. Um, and that doesn't actually make sense. Like that's really like one action just with five different flavors. Like if you have five possible actions and they're all really, really similar, that's bad. Paradox is the idea of like, what would the opposite of these actions be? Is it possible that the opposite of this action is better than this action? Um, and I think on my LinkedIn example, what I said was, okay, so the, I think the example was like, okay, hey, uh, we want to automate this pipeline so that this new forecast gets updated to our sales team. You know, can you tell us more about what that would look like? And then the data scientist lead says, okay, hey, you know, our level effort on this is like 400 hours, um, you know, which is equivalent to some hundred, you know, some tens of thousands of dollars in staff time. You look at the equity of the situation and there's only like $50,000 in equity really for the sales team here. So what's the, what's the idea, right? Like your, your mindset is, okay, well, can I make a, a weaker version? Can I make a faster version? Can I make a, you know, a version that, maybe drags out a little longer and only uses the leftover time of my staff instead of making it the primary project. Those are all really similar actions in that you're all, you're still trying to build them what they asked for. The paradox is if it is not valuable, tell them and maybe do something else that's completely opposite. Maybe instead of automating some pipeline, you can just, you know, replace that entire pipeline or remove it. And maybe you're inundated with KPIs and they need less KPIs actually. And they don't need a 25th KPI. Um, you know, what's the paradox here? It's like, instead of adding new features, can you remove bloat? So that's, that's the, the idea of paradox is like, what's the exact opposite? And is it possible the exact opposite has more equity? Does that kind of tie into working as a, a consultant as well? Because I feel like as a consultant, you have to wear very different hats all the time, right? Many hats all the time. Can you kind of walk us through the fundamentals of consulting for data science? Sure. I don't think there's anything special about data science consulting relative to like consulting. I think it's just one flavor of consulting. Um, so, I mean, I think even our data science team, I think, we, I think we're consultants first, which um, skews us because, you know, we, we're not doing this internal big data science of like, yeah, you know, here's our like, here's our revenues and here's our costs and let's like optimize this. Like we're, we're not internal retail data scientists, we're consultant data scientists. So what that means is we're constantly dealing with new clients and constantly dealing with new problems. So we have to like really refine our problem statement generation process. And something that I'm doing as technical sales lead of our AI group is, you know, 
reading more about product management and reading more about like job to be done theory. Um, that's something that you can Google. There's a great book. It's free online. Uh, when coffee and kale compete, it's on Basecamp. Highly recommend that book. And one of the things that we're learning through our, you know, like our mock demos and our like book sessions, we literally have like book club for our job, which is like really cool. So it's really been helpful. Um, one of the things we're learning is like your customers don't know what they want. They only know that they need to make progress. So if someone tells you, you, hey, you know, we we need you to build this for us. Don't take that at face value. You need to take you need to take a step back and say, okay, well, you've clearly come to this conclusion because you've considered other things, and those other things had positive and negative, and you felt the negatives outweighed them. So what other solutions have you considered? And tell me why you didn't choose those. Because it's possible I know something that you don't that would lead us to picking a different solution. That's one reason. Another reason might be. Uh, the classic example in the book is, you know, you're, you're, uh, there's a drill manufacturer and they're saying, you know, these people don't want drills. They want holes so that they can hang their picture frames. And it's like, uh, actually take another step back. They don't want holes. They want to hang a picture. So it's not just the hole. It's actually not the drill. Their progress is having more art in their home. So when you can actually get the progress that they want, and you don't get distracted by these tasks that they may be ignorantly, not, not ignorantly, naively think will solve their problem. You can actually reframe, paradox, give them another solution that is like fits their mold entirely. And one example, um, this is actually published. We got published in the American Journal of Epidemiology along with one of our clients for this. I um, you know, they had this idea that they're going to have this big SAS script and, um, you know, they're going to do training webinars around how to, you know, learn SAS and use SAS in order to you know, implement this algorithm that they developed. And the paradox for us was, well, you don't really want that. You don't want to do training sessions. You don't want to teach people proprietary software. You want to give them an algorithm that will improve public health. What's the paradox here is let's not do, let's not train anything at all. Let's not even use this software at all. Let's get your algorithm into open source Instead of learning to change the code, let's talk about an application that has defined parameters so that people have a web-based, you know, user-friendly, user-centric designed interface that will allow them to perform this algorithm without code. Um, and that was a huge reframe um, for them because it really took out the, you know, really put them in the context of, you know, these people are at tiny health departments. They probably can't afford proprietary software. So we're like losing people before they're even joining. Customer job theory, super helpful. Um, thinking about what solutions they've tried and didn't consider. Uh, making sure that you're not taking their tasks at face value. Those are all super important. Very, very fascinating. I especially like that uh, point about the, the problem statement generation, like having to look at it from a different angle pretty much. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. How does this differ from working in a regular organization? I barely know. Uh, the only time I've done internal data science was for startups. And uh, those always didn't really go very well. And they're always really small. So, I mean, I read about it. Um, there's a really cool book called The Unicorn Project. It's realistic fiction. 
It's about um, this engineer. She's a senior engineer. She gets put on like a project no one wants to be on. And she finds out all this terrible stuff in terms of like IT and dev environments and like, you know, inability to work in a production environment, all this stuff. And she's, um, she's like grinding out how to like turn this project around 180 and make it like the star of the company that brings in tons of profit. And through that book, I learned a lot about like, what does an internal data science group look like and internal IT function look like? So she's like, she's like delegating engineering tasks, delegating data science tasks, delegating analyst tasks. And like through that, I was like learning like, oh, okay, like these people are building systems of applications. And that's very different from what I do. I don't build systems of applications. I build micro applications that let you do like one specific task extremely fast and well so that that problem is solved and you can move on to another problem. Um, and I think for internal data scientists, they work on a giant problem and that giant problem has a bunch of moving pieces. That's a very different ecosystem to my understanding. And I recommend that book. Excellent book. Excellent book. Highly recommend that. I don't recommend Phoenix Project as much, but Unicorn Project is great. So the difference is, so we recommend Unicorn Project for developers and then Phoenix Project for managers. That's how yeah. we do it. Yeah. I, I found Phoenix Project to be too DevOpsy for me, but Unicorn Project was like just, I guess I understood it more, I guess. is, is kind of, I, I mean, I struggled through Unicorn Project. I was like, what are some of these words? Like, yeah. I've never been a backend developer. I don't know what these are. So do you have any tips for people who are trying to break into data science by doing freelance work? Um, I think for freelance is hard because it's not going to pay your bills. It's just going to like make you meet a lot of friends and hear a lot of cool problems. My recommendation for breaking in is like, don't be afraid to start at the bottom. Like I started at a firm as the lowest paid, like lowest ranked associate. My job was to copy paste out of word into notepad to remove formatting. And yes, I timed it. It was faster to do it this way because of the last program and then paste it into like Adobe Captivate or something, which I hated if you tried to right click paste without formatting. I did like eight hours a day. Seriously. I was just like copy paste into notepad to strip formatting, copy paste. That was terrible. So what I did was I was like, Hey, if I could automate this, would that be okay? And they're like, I don't care what you do. Just get it done. So I downloaded R, cranked up R shiny. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, there has to be a way. Cause if I have to copy paste another eight hours a day, like I'm going to quit this job and lose all, like lose my apartment. So I learned about like, you know, library officer and how to like, you can read in documents and how you can break them up into paragraphs and how you can look at their formatting and their styling. And I was like, okay, let's re-engineer this whole process. What would it look like to have a perfect word document that I could convert into a PowerPoint that I could have that PowerPoint already stylized and prepped and templated so that I could import it into the software for e-learning courses. Bunch of trial and error and I figured out how to do it. And suddenly we were pumping out like iterations. Like we went from one review phase to like five review phases. We were going like a million miles an hour in terms of like the content we were spitting out. We did 23 online courses that are published and out on the internet for continuing medical education credits in like less than six months, including like I was using, I was using like a Google text to speech audio. I had like robo audio that sounded superhumanoid, all because I started at the bottom and they had low expectations. So it was really easy to like impress. And then I got asked to move to the data analytics team because that was clearly such a skill set of mine, like within months, uh, like 10 months within a year. Like they were like telling me that I should move teams. And I was like, dude, if like, I would have never gone into that job without like already being inside here. 
I ended up switching firms. Um, but still, like starting at the bottom, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with the data analyst title. There's nothing wrong with any of these titles. Like just get in. There's some straight hustle and grind. And the best bit of advice that anybody can hear who's trying to break into data science is to ignore the job title. Just take the job, even if it's data adjacent, do the work, crush it, and then learn from who else is in your organization and then just make that jump. That's awesome yeah. advice. I mean, low expectations are great. Like I love low expectations because it just makes it so easy. It's like, it's not, I mean, this is a little sad because it's like a little bit racist, but like people will get so impressed with me just for the fact that I speak English and my name is Carlos. And I'm just like, this is such a low bar. Like this is an incredibly low bar to have for me, but I'm crushing this bar because English is my native language. Like I don't mind low expectations. And I think if you put yourself in those spots and you're okay with those and you just completely crush, like you said, it's going to be awesome. Um, and I, I know there are perils to low expectations, um, you know, in education theory and stuff like that, but for adults, like there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Low expectations are good if you know that you can crush them, but if you use them as a excuse to just keep your productivity, your output, and your just mentality low, then that that's definitely an issue. Hey, like uh, I said, I mean, what was it? 90 something percent of the people who asked me for a resume review won't read my article when I give it to them. I don't know. And I know they don't read it because I look at my view counts and they don't go up. So yeah. So, I mean, like um, people are lazy. And I mean, if you're lazy, like do something else because there's too many people trying to get that title. Like, oof, it is hard to stay in data science sometimes just because there's so many people gunning for your spot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you talking about resumes. Uh, what are some, some of the biggest areas for improvement that a data scientist could make on the resume? Sure. Easy ones. Um, it's a sales document. So use it to sell. I, I don't want, it's not a menu. It's not a restaurant menu. Why are you having 50 skills? And like, I, this is like, this is constant. It's like, yeah, here are my like eight programming languages. Here's five to 10 packages per programming language. Here's six different database architecture stuff. Here's three different cloud, whatever. And I'm just like, this is a restaurant menu. Is it a build your own data scientist right now? Like, tell me what you're really good at and make it really easy for someone to say this guy will fit on my team or this girl will fit on my team. That's step one. Step two is polish. Like why is your LinkedIn name impossible to type? Like Bobby Smith, three, eight B nine, four, three B like, like, come on, like just Google how to clean that up. Why is your GitHub repo homework to IPYMB? Do recruiters know how to open a notebook? Is that an expectation you have for them that they're going to open up your notebook? Cause if I open up your notebook, I know what I'm going to see. I'm going to see a bunch of data cleaning mixed in with data viz mixed in with modeling. And it's going to be ugly. I'm going to be like, you don't know how to split your code into scripts. You don't know how to write a function. Why would I hire you? Like you're just not making it easy for yourself. Like your GitHub should feel like a blog post. Like it should feel like blog post. You should have a GitHub pages. Even don't even just post, don't post your GitHub repos, post a GitHub pages that feels like a website. Like, it's just these things have so much equity, but people are just so short-term biased that they don't want to put in 10 hours to get a job that pays 20 grand more. And it's like, are you serious? You won't put in 10 hours for that 20 grand in like year one equity. They're just not thinking of it. Right. And then also emphasizing the wrong thing. I mean, I, honestly, I am impressed by people who travel across the world for an education. I'm extremely impressed that you can just uproot your whole life, move to another country, 
go to graduate school in your second and be third language. I'm very impressed with that stuff. That's not going to get you a job. Like you have to put your experience first and you have to underemphasize your education because you need to look like a pro. Um, and if, 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 if your education is up top, you're telling me that the signal is hire me because I went to a good school and the signal needs to be hire me because I can make an impact. Um, and I think last one, there's so many, how many, how much more time do you have? I can give you <laughs> three more. Maybe I can give you two more if time permits. Well, I, I think an important point you made, there's about a restaurant menu of your resume. You should have one simple rule for your resume. If I put this on my resume and people ask me questions about this thing from left, right, center, upside down, inside out, and I cannot answer questions on this thing, maybe I shouldn't bullshit myself and whoever's interviewing me by having it on there. Because at that point, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. Don't get me wrong. I did it too. My first resumes were like, oh yeah, I touched Google Texas speech. GCP. I'm like, no, I don't know Google. I don't know Google Cloud. What am I talking about? Let me take that off. I use one API. That's not Google Cloud. So I mean, yeah, part of it is just honesty with yourself. And part of it is making it simple. Um, the two more pieces of advice are um, make a summary statement, like be specific. Like I want to use Python in my next data science shop. That's not specific. Like pick an industry that you have experience in. Domain expertise is really good. Um, you know, a better one, for example, might be, it's in the article I posted too. Better one would be, uh, you know, like I'm a Python specialist with a strong background in finance, especially interested in integrating like natural language processing and machine learning to, uh, you know, forecast financial markets. And that's like really, really specific. It name drops like two key skills. It has a cool twist in NLP because NLP is underused in finance. That's changing now. That's been changing, actually. People have been using automated like web crawlers to understand like stock events for a while. I shouldn't say that. Um, so summary. And the last one is just like narrative based. Like if I see another resume that says I increase the accuracy of our database by 15% using uh, imputation. And it's just like, okay, one I don't even know if you know that imputation is dangerous based on the story. And two, I don't know if that accuracy actually makes a business impact because you didn't connect it to money or percentages or time saved or anything else. So like I have to ignore this bullet point because this bullet point isn't connected to generating value. And I can't assume that slightly accurate, more slightly more accurate or imputation actually leads to value. And the other thing about the GitHub's, uh, it's like, dude, just use cookie cutter data science, GitHub, like, I mean, repository structure uh, and organize your code accordingly. So much GitHub repos I see are just like blank IPYMB. And the readme says, I did an analysis on data inside my Python notebook included. I'm just like, they're really going to make someone do like, they've gone like three clicks. They went from your resume to the GitHub. They went from your GitHub to the specific repo. And now you're telling them that you're not going to tell them the nice experiment data science design and like result of your analysis and like a blog format on your readme. You're going to make them open your code. Like, come on. No one wants to stare at code. They want to like see the story. And then the code can be like the fourth thing they check. Yeah. Well, you have to make it easy for people to see the value that you can contribute. And if your first impression is I make 
people just click on 18 different links before they get to the punchline. It's not a good impression, right? Make it easy for people to see the value you can contribute by just having a very well thought out readme, which is kind of like an executive summary of sorts, right? Yeah, I think people just forget that there's humans on the other end of this stuff. They're just like, they're pitching to a robot. So they're like dumping keywords and they're dumping texts and they're dumping like numbers. Even if you get past the ATS, right? But let's say that your resume has like a 50% ATS pass rate. That's irrelevant if it has like a 0% human pass rate. I'd much rather only get through like 2% of the ATS and then pass the humans by like 80% plus. And also I'd actually much rather just go around the ATS by doing the fast track as I mentioned before. So let's talk about this and tie this into the importance of building a personal brand as a data scientist. How can you go about building a personal brand for yourself? Personal branding is important for two reasons. The first one is... Um, these platforms will multiply what you give. So Twitter is a great uh, social media source for data scientists. A lot of great data scientists are on there. Medium's great for posting articles. I'm not sure what the community is like. I haven't used it that way. Reddit community is really nice. Um, LinkedIn's really cool. The reason that you build a personal brand is not for other people. It's for yourself. And that's because what you give gets multiplied. Like I've only been like actually trying on LinkedIn for like a few months. And this is my second podcast. Like tons of people are following me. I'm just like ranting. I'm not really structuring. 99% of my LinkedIn is just like on the phone while walking around, like feeding my cats and stuff. I'm just like, Oh, I'm just going to write about this random idea while I'm like sitting outside, enjoying the weather for a bit, drinking coffee. I don't drink coffee, but drinking water and it works. I mean, like it, like I get so much more than I put out and you can too. So that's the first reason. Second reason is it just puts you on people's radar. Um, and that's good for job security. Um, and it's good for just like your own growth. Like I have met so many people on LinkedIn that I then go to a conference and I know that they're there and it's like, Oh, like we're now actually like friends. Like this is like really cool. And like I said, like you, whatever you give, you get like so much more back. What are the qualities that you are looking for when you're hiring a data scientist for your team? If I were hiring data scientists, I would keep it very simple, depending on the level. Can you write reproducible code? Do you understand like object classes? Do you have like fundamentals of statistical programming? Can you debug without like commenting in and out lines? Um, do you know that notebooks are not everything that you're allowed to not use notebooks? Um, do you understand, you know, the cell of data scientists and the consulting side? Cause you know, we're consultants first. Do you understand like that a lot of this stuff is philosophical, that these are not like easily, you can't just like hear a problem and go, no network. Like that's a really bad sign because that's your like first instinct. Um, so these are like the kind of flags and basics. And I posted more on that post um, in terms of like kind of the six things that I hope you have three of. Um, and I don't even have all six things that well. There's just the six things that I think are important. Okay, so last question here before you jump into the lightning round. What's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? Oh, that you can do it. Uh, start at the bottom, like me. I was making no money. I remember I was living in like a 300 square foot tiny place in uh, Incheon, Korea. And I was like, I need to get into a grad school. I needed to go back to like my life in economics and like three, four years, like huge turnaround. Um, so that's the main thing I want people to get. And also uh, be, be patient. Like 
I don't know, you know, interest compounds, value compounds. So it's okay if it takes like a year or two to get where you want. Just have like a, have like year long visions. Like people, what is, they overestimate what they can do in a week, but they underestimate what they can do in a year. That's very, very true. So jumping into lightning round here, what's your data science superpower? Car shiny. What's an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching on? Sales psychology. So what's the number one book, fiction, nonfiction, or if you want to drop both, that's okay, that you would recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? I guess, I think Swipe to Unlock, I want to say, because it's an easy read, it's getting more popular, and I think it gives you, it gives you a really nice overview of what the average person might not know about technology, and you're going to talk to a lot of people who don't like study technology that much, so I think that book's like really cool. It really gives you like a nice level set of what a you know miscellaneous like business person might not know that much about. So if we could somehow get a magical telephone that allowed you to contact 20-year-old Carlos, what would you tell him? First, give us some, some context, 20-year-old Carlos. Where was he? What was he doing? What would, you, what would you tell him? 20-year-old Carlos was entering his senior year of undergrad. I would tell him to... Um, Take school a little more seriously, but also um, to start studying art more uh, earlier and start reading on the side more. Like I loved economics and I just hated economics classes and I felt bad. And so I shouldn't have felt bad. I should have just been like, okay, they're not teaching me what I want to know because these classes that I would love aren't available. So I would just tell them like, don't feel so bad and like read economics on the side will make you feel better about not liking economics classes. You could have a billboard put anywhere in the world. Where would you put it? What would it say and why? Uh, in Jacksonville, Florida at the beach. Um, and I would say like, uh, enjoy the weather. I don't know. I'd just say like, enjoy life a little bit more. Like appreciate the little things. Like I, I really miss Jacksonville beach and like the days that I was just like my whole life and every summer I was just like, yeah, I go to the beach. I play beach volleyball and I swim and I do that like 10 hours a day every day. And now looking back, I was like, I took that for granted. Like, that was so fun and easy. So, like, yeah, I just appreciate the little things. And I'd put it back in that sentimental spot. There you go, man. What's the best advice you ever received? Someone once told me while I was talking to them about something, like, oh, that's not really relevant to me. And I was like, damn, that's rude. Like, that's such a rude thing to say. But also, it saves so much time. Like it just saves so much time for them to just acknowledge that what I was telling them was not relevant to them and that we should not continue spending time on it. And I was like, that really woke me up to the sunk cost fallacy being so real. Cause I'll get like 20 minutes into a meeting or a conversation and I'll realize like, this is so off track. We're so far away from our goal right now, but we're already 20 minutes into this, like this, you know, right turn segue. Let's just see where it goes. No, just say, actually, we need to scrap all of this. Like we need to just throw this all away and get back to where we need to be. Like the sunk cost fallacy is so dangerous. And that woke me up to that. Um, and I've been using that phrase more and it feels rude, but it gets the job done. What motivates you? Money. Money is the, is the unit of exchange. So like, I, I actually feel this way. Like money will solve so many problems and the money, the problems that it won't solve it'll solve so many other problems that you get to focus on the problems money can't solve. Like money will just like be able to substitute so much headache that you can devote your life to like important stuff. So like anyone who tells you like money isn't important, it's like trying to take your money. What song is giving you life? What song do you have on repeat? 
you know, have you seen that new meme that goes around that um, you go on your Spotify and you you actually type like on repeat and it tells you what you've been listening to like crazy. I had no idea that was a thing on Spotify. Yeah, Spotify's getting fancy. Um, so it's Sugar by Brockhampton. But I would also yeah. say that 20 Minutes by uh, 20 Men by Lil Uzi for, I don't know what he's saying in that song because I'm like not really paying attention, but the beat just makes me like, I'm so ready to party on that song. Also Roses by St. John. So Carlos, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you? On LinkedIn. Very easy to add on LinkedIn. Right on, man. Hey, Carlos, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really, really appreciate having you here. No problem. Thanks. Bye.